Well, good morning. You might need six or seven minutes. You did really well at five minutes of one anothering. Good job. Hey, we are going to continue our series in the life of Paul as he and Barnabas make their way in now to the city of Lystra. It seems that they may have entered this city a little bit out of breath because they had just fled from Iconium and the persecution there, and so now they have traveled another 18 miles into Lystra, which is part of what we know as Turkey today. And so uh, here we go. I'd like for us to start with our map and walk us through where Paul and Barnabas have been so far. And some of you might be saying, wait a minute, we always start with this map. Why do we do this? And that's because we're preparing you for the pop quiz that's coming up that I just announced. So when you come one Sunday and you see that quiz on your, on your chair, you'll be ready to go on these things. So here's where we've been. We started in Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And they have added a third person. John Mark is going with them on the trip so far. And they go from Antioch to Seleucia, which would be a seaport town where they're going to catch a boat. That was 16 miles. And then they go about 90 miles to the island of Cyprus. So imagine yourself down in Miami going to Cuba. We're about 90 miles down here. And here is where a pattern for Paul and Barnabas starts to take place. They go to a city. They preach in the synagogue, the Jewish people and some of the Gentiles who believe and fear God are there, and then they go into the towns and the marketplaces and the surrounding areas, and they continue to preach the gospel. So that's what they do here at uh, uh, Salamis, and then they make their way through this island and go over some 140 miles over to Paphos. Now, Pathos, we know two significant things happen according to the Bible and that we've covered so far. One, that is where Paul's name really becomes Paul. He's no longer Saul, so he's Paul the rest of the series all the way through. His name change happens there. Another thing that happens is there's a false teacher that is trying to suppress what Paul wants to say, and then Paul does a miracle of a temporary blindness on this guy, and it all happens here at Pathos. 150 miles by boat, they land at Perga. Perga, another significant thing happens. John Mark leaves them and travels back home. We don't have all the details of what happened there, but it seems something happened in these three, I don't know, what is that, 40-ish miles that have happened somewhere. Something happened of some type of disagreement, we think, and Paul and, and John Mark leaves, and they're stuck just now, two of them, Paul and Barnabas and Perga, and they travel 100 miles to Antioch in, in, in Poseidon. Now, these 100 miles, rough terrain, hard incline, think Stairmaster Plus, like it is not an easy track to get here. So they travel 100 miles, and again, the pattern is in place. They get to the town, they preach in the synagogue, things are going well at first, but it seems that Paul and Barnabas always wear out their welcome, and they're starting now to flee town because of thoughts and talks of persecution. Last week, we covered the 60 miles till they got to Iconium. Same thing happened. Same preaching in the synagogue. Same preaching in the town. Spreading the word. People receive it for a little while. But then it turns bad, and they run again. And so this is where we are 18 miles later in Lystra. So if you add it all up, it's roughly 574 miles traveled by foot and by boat. Quite the trip, all for the sake of the gospel. And if you're wondering, when is this series on the life of Paul going to end? Let me just say that Paul's missionary travels over the course of his life easily, easily exceeds 10,000 miles. And that was just walking alone. 
So, it's not the time to ask that ever-famous traveling question, are we there yet? It is not. We are just getting started, and here we are in Lystra. What do we know about Lystra? It seems to be little in size. It's a smaller town than other towns that we've looked at. Um, they have a reputation of being, of being rustic, backwards, perhaps even a little gullible, a little out of touch from the modern, bigger cities that we've seen. I, I, when I was reading through about these people, I almost came away thinking, these people kind of sound like the Beverly Hillbillies. Like, like they, now, if that's unfair to them, I apologize, but I, it's kind of the mindset that I got of, of who these people are. But what makes this experience in Lystra so different and so significant for Paul and Barnabas is that it's the first time that they are going to be ministering to exclusively or nearly exclusively pagan people. Like this is a town made up of mostly Romans, mostly Greeks, and just some, a small number of Jews. And these people have their own little language, native language here. The Lysonians spoke their own language. So it's going to be a little bit of a challenge. Because there were so few Jews living in Lystra, the town did not have a synagogue. The Jews would have to worship on their own or in their homes instead of at a synagogue. So the normal, what I want you to see here is that the normal pattern of preaching is not happening in Lystra. It is straight street evangelism, if you will. And it makes for one of the most dynamic accounts in all of the book of Acts. And I want to read it to you as told by Luke. So if you have a Bible, or it'll be on our screen as well, it's Acts 14, 8 through 20. In Lystra, a man without strength in his feet, lame from birth, and who had never walked, sat and heard Paul speaking. I wonder if Paul was speaking about Jesus and how he healed the sick and gave sight to the blind and made the lame to walk. Maybe. But Paul, after observing this man with no strength in his feet and lame from birth closely and seeing that he had faith to be healed, Paul said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he jumped up and he started walking around. Now remember, in this series, we've already discussed that Paul and Barnabas have received special authority, special power by the Holy Spirit to do miraculous signs and wonders. And that is on full display right here. You can see it two ways. First, there is no way one person can look inward at the faith of another person and see that they have faith. And yet that's exactly what it says happens right here. After observing him closely and seeing that he had faith to be healed. This is a unique kind of scene. This is a Holy Spirit kind of scene. Second, Paul says, get up. That's not normal either. People power can't do stuff like that. This is a spiritual power, a Holy Spirit power. It's a miracle. The grown man whose name is not given here in the text, who has never stood up on his own two feet, who has never walked a step in any day of his life, now stands up, he jumps up, and starts walking around. Imagine being there, the guy who's always in the way, the guy who's always on the street corner, asking, helping, begging for money, and needing help all the time. That guy is now walking and leaping and praising God. And the people in the town are wowed by it. Look at it, verse 11. 
really impressed. When the crowd saw what people, what, what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in Lyconian language, that's again a language that Paul and Barnabas don't understand, the gods have come down to us in the form of men. And they started to call Barnabas, Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the main speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the town, brought oxen and garlands to the gates. He, with the crowds, intended to offer sacrifice. What in the world is going on here? The locals have never seen anything like this before. They do not know who Paul and Barnabas are. They just know that two guys have showed up to their town and told a man who has never stood up a day in his life to stand up, and he did. And I want you to think about it this way. All of their life, they have been told certain stories. They have believed certain stories about the gods of mythology growing up. We see that by naming them Zeus and Hermes. They've never heard anything like this kind of preaching going on before. They've never seen anything like this. And now they are thinking right before our eyes, standing right here in our town, the gods have showed up. And they were super duper excited. They appointed Barnabas to be Zeus, probably because he was older than Paul. And they appointed Paul to be Hermes because he was the main speaker of this really strange marketplace evangelism outreach that's gone really, really weird. Think about it. Greek and Roman mythology would have been very much part of the New Testament events because the culture of the day was Greek and Roman. So these things, it's not surprising that we have Greek and Roman gods mentioned in the Bible. They're mentioned here, they're going to be mentioned later in Acts, and they're mentioned in other books of the Bible as well. So it's not strange at all. I put together just a small list of the gods that they have, and this is just very, very short. So we have Zeus, he is the king of all gods, like he's the, 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 the chief of it all. He's married, apparently, right? He's got a, the goddess of Hera. She's the queen of all gods. Um, Aphrodite, goddess of beauty and love. And what these people would do is, as you had need for certain things, they would pray to the appropriate god. And so if you were, say, oh, a warrior, and you're going to war, you would pray to Mars, deliver us. And if, it was, uh, if you were a hunter, then you would pray to the goddess Diana, that you'd have a good hunt. Now, interesting that she was also the goddess of hunting and of childbirth. Interesting combination on how that all works together. I don't understand all that, but this is what they would do for it, right? And then you got uh, Demeter, goddess of agriculture and grain. If you were a farmer or you had a garden growing and you wanted it to be plentiful, then you preach to Demeter. And all the way through, you get these Poseidon, God of the sea, and of course, Eros, Cupid. You've got God of sex. And so this list of mythology and gods were very much part of their culture, and it was growing all the time, more and more gods. And if you think about it, maybe we aren't too far from these people here in Lystra. Think about companies that we have right around us, companies like Amazon. Amazon, in Greek mythology, it's a member of a special race of women warriors. Check out some of your shoes. Nike. It's the goddess of victory. Orion Movie Company, Olympus Cameras, Atlas Moving Trucks, car companies like Mercury and Saturn, gods of travel. We have cities like Phoenix, Arizona, books like Harry Potter's Phoenix, um, oh, what was the name of the book? Phoenix of the Sapphire. 
right? Sports teams like um, Spartans and Trojans, candy bars, Mars, candy bar. Trident gum. Pisidian, the Greek god of the sea, held a trident, a three-pronged trident for protection. And it's trident gum that supposedly has three enzymes to fight off cavities. It's all amongst us right here. The New York Theater, Apollo. Venus razors, ladies. Shave with this kind of razor, and it is smooky, silky smooth legs forever. This is what they're, we're, we, they're promoting through their, through their sales pitch. I did not know this, but I know it now. Ajax was a grandson to Zeus, and he was one tough fighter. So what better cleaning agent to have than Ajax around the house? And the Midas touch. King Midas' legend was that everything that he touched turned to gold. And so certainly if you take your vehicle to Midas, the work on your car will be like gold. And it so goes on and on and on and on. And of course, we cannot leave out the Cupid shuffle. Right? <laughs> to the left, to the left. Yeah. And I, I admitted earlier, I grew up Baptist, so I don't know how to dance like that. <laughs> but it's everywhere in our culture. But what I want you to notice it is certain that these folks in Lystra, they are sincerely sincere about their desire to worship. Now, I want you to imagine yourself going on a mission trip similar to this, where the Holy Spirit equips you and sends you to a group of people in a little podunk area that speak a different language than you, and you cannot understand them, and God shows up, the living God shows up on this trip, and he does a miracle, and the people go into a frenzy. And you would be like, yes, God, yes, praise God. And then it dawns on you when you see the witch doctor bringing cows and garlands and waving butcher knives in the air that they are coming to make sacrifice, and they are coming to make that sacrifice to you. That's the scene that is going on right here. Very interesting for us to imagine. But it is true, and it's a great reminder for us, that God has placed upon every human heart the desire to worship. And the problem is, apart from God's truth about himself, and the problem is, humanity left to our own ways, we will always miss the mark of worship. We'll worship something less than God, and that's exactly what's happening in Lystra. Verse 14 at first, Paul and Barnabas, they didn't understand what was going on, but once they did, they completely reject the idea of being worshipped. 14, the apostles Barnabas and Paul tore their robes. That's an act of grief. When they heard this, and they rushed into the crowd shouting, Men, why are you doing these things? We are men also, with the same nature as you. And we are proclaiming good news to you that you should turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. Paul and Barnabas are pumping the brakes as fast as they can and as hard as they can now that they realize that these people are not worshiping the living God. They are worshiping us. And they give two ways that they specifically plead with them to stop doing this. First, they say, in a very direct 
and I would say bold manner, they tell them, everything you are doing is wrong. Imagine being told that. Believing something all your life and then being told everything is wrong. Your gods are fake. The worship is useless. Your gods are worthless. And two, they say, but we give you good news. Turn from everything you've ever known. Turn from the false gods you worship and turn to the living God, the real God, the true God, the one who's made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. And so I, I, I think that the right way to look at these people is not like condemning. And maybe, maybe they were a little gullible, but I certainly believe that sympathy should be included for them. Never have, had, have heard something like this, never have seen something like this, and now it is upon them. And they continue to plead with them in verses 16 and 17. And they start to explain to them that God has made it possible for, for him to be known no matter what and in everyday living. Verses 16. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to go their own way, although he did not leave himself without a witness. Since he did what is good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons and satisfying your heart with food and happiness. Paul is pleading with them to consider what we sometimes call the common grace of God. Like rain from heaven, it does many good things for us. But have you ever thought of it? That the primary reason for rain is to serve as a witness to the living God? Fruit growing on trees serves as a living witness as a, to the living God. Every time you sink your teeth into that apple, every time you peel that orange, the intention from God's perspective is that you will know the living God who created this and created the tree and the air and the ground, the nutrients that come from, and the sun and the rain, and the people who pick these fruit from these trees, and the people who ship them out, and the people who drive them to the store, and all the people who come to the store to buy it. All of this was made by the living God. There's a witness that God has left for each and every person to see Him, and then to worship Him. I think that is incredible. Do you? Not, not so much. Okay. Okay. It's good. And truthfully, just like the first service. Take it or leave it, God. Air. You know, we don't need that. Well, their, their appeal barely worked. Verse 18. Even though they said these things, they barely stopped the crowds from sacrificing to them. What a wild scene Luke is describing. But when, but then, in the most stunning turn of events, and just when you don't think it can get any more weird, it does. Verse 19. Then, <clears throat> excuse me. Then some of the Jews from Antioch, and this would be Antioch of Pisidia, some 80 miles away, and Iconium, 18 miles away, and when they had won over the crowds, 
and stoned Paul. They dragged him out of the city thinking he was dead. I'm thinking you've really got to hate somebody and the message that they're preaching to walk 18 miles, let alone 80 miles, to go and to kill them. But that's what apparently is happening. And I wonder if Paul is having flashbacks to Stephen at this point. Remember that from a few weeks ago, several weeks ago? Paul, before he was a Christian, he was involved in executing a Christian by the name of Stephen by stoning them to death. Paul is the guy that's told there of holding the outer garments while others threw the rocks. You know, you can wind up better. And then I wondered, what about Barnabas? How come he didn't get stoned? And what about the lame man? Certainly he's not throwing the stones. You would think that he would be like, whoa, whoa, mob, stop doing what you're doing. Well, we don't know the answers to these things, but I think probably because Paul was the main speaker, he was the Hermes to them, that they then turned mostly on him. And they hit him with stones in a way that they thought he was dead. He looked dead. When they dragged him out of the town, his body gave no resistance to it. There were no groans and moans coming from him. They thought he was dead. Verse 20. After the disciples surrounded him, he got up and went into town. The next day he left with Barnabas for Derby. Walked back into town? That seems like the last place I'd ever go. And that's what he does. And the text doesn't say what happened when he walked through town. But I got to think, um, here comes Paul walking right down Main Street after everyone in the town thought they just had killed him. I wonder what was going through their minds. And perhaps this getting up and walking downtown, perhaps that was a miracle as well. Because you don't just get pulverized with rocks, knocked unconscious, possibly broken bones, likely lacerations all over you, head injuries, concussions, internal bleeding, and then just get back up and walk into town. It could very well be that something special happened when the disciples surrounded him. But wait, disciples? That ends with an S. That makes it plural. Well, who were the disciples? There was Barnabas. Maybe the lame man. I wonder if others believed as well. Seems to be that way, maybe. But whether they believed it Others believed it or not, or if it was just the layman, Paul would say it was worth it. And really, Lystra marks for us, it's just the first of a really long list of persecution to come. We've kind of seen it coming, though, haven't we? As we've gone through the map, right? They preach the word, and there's a plan to make persecution, and they get out. They preach the word, and the people are coming to get them. The plan's been put in place, and they get out. But here in Lystra, they get them. The persecution is to come. And really, if you think about it, Paul still has 9,500 mile plus miles to go. And it is a long list of persecution to come.
In fact, I want to show it to you in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul gives this summary of his hardships. He says, my life has been a life of, starting in verse 23, of far more labors, many more imprisonments, far worse beatings, near death many times. Five times I received 39 lashes from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with the rods by the Romans. Once I was stoned by my enemies. That happened right here in Lystra. Three times I was shipwrecked. I have spent a night and a day in the open sea. That was not because he was on a cruise ship. He was adrift and lost at sea. On frequent journeys, I faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the open country, dangers on the sea, and dangers among false brothers. Is the word danger said enough to get the point? Verse 27, labor and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold, and lacking clothing. Not to mention other things. There's this daily pressure on me, my care for all the church. Whew. It was a life of hardship and sufferings for Paul. Well, that's the life of Paul in Lystra. Now what? Now, what do we do with like application to this most unusual, most one of these most dynamic events from the Word of God in Acts to our lives? What do we do with this? Well, I think this passage shows us how we should present the gospel in places where people believe a lot of different things. And that's wonderful, because we live in a society where people believe lots of different things. Right now, in this room, there is this Christianity belief that we are talking about and emphasizing, but there's also postmodern beliefs. Oh, there's no absolute truth in the universe. You ever met people with, like that in your circle of people? Is Islamic beliefs... Buddhistic beliefs, New Age beliefs, reincarnation, things like that, and holism and pantheism, agnostic beliefs, atheist beliefs, and on and on and on the list goes. There are lots of different beliefs going on. And this passage shows us some go-to strategy for when we share the gospel. And I, and I hope as we go through this, you're like, oh yes, I'm already doing these things. And maybe it'll be good for us then to say, oh, I can improve at some of this, or I need to be doing some of this. So I see at least five of them in these verses that Paul and Barnabas are displaying here to the people of Lystra. And I want to start with this, though, that the foundation of, of these strategies, if you will, they are all based, they are all founded upon the work of the Holy Spirit. Like, that cannot be denied in these verses. So I want to make sure that we're all on the same page here. That the role of the Holy Spirit is so vital when it comes to sharing the gospel. Because sometimes I think we can look at a list like we're getting ready to look at, and we go, oh, okay, let me, let me just like knock out this list. This is like, I'll, I'll just do this. That's not the right way to approach this. This is Holy Spirit stuff. And I don't want us to miss that. 
And I certainly want to give credit for the work of the Holy Spirit that's happening here in Lystra. So, one, when we are led by the Holy Spirit to share the gospel with people who believe a lot of different things, it's going to involve compassion, kindness, and love. I want you to look back at verses 8 and 9, and you can see this. In Lystra, a man without strength in his feet, lame from birth, and who had never walked, sat and heard Paul speaking. After observing him closely and seeing that, he had faith to be healed. Paul preached and healed. Jesus preached and healed. Peter preached and healed. That was a pattern that was happening in the New Testament for us to see all the time. Now, it'd be real easy to reason and go, well, wait a minute. These are like elite miracles. This is way out of my pay grade here in 2022. There's a principle here that we have to understand and apply in sharing the gospel. And it's this, that we share the gospel by using our words and we share the gospel by our actions that we do. It is both word and deed when it comes to the gospel. What's the famous Teddy Roosevelt saying? People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. That is a biblical principle, and it certainly applies in sharing the gospel. Second, when led by the Holy Spirit to share the gospel with people who believe a lot of different things, it involves directly confronting the problem. Now, some of you are like, oh yeah, that's me. I am the directly confronting person. I don't like you probably very much. I'm not that, right? But this is, this is a point that we see right here from Paul and Barnabas. And the thing is that the people in Lystra, and for us today, the problem is the same. Idolatry. Everyone is living for something. Everyone has a master. Whatever is your purpose in life, whatever it is that controls you, that is your master. And the problem with idolatry is that it under-delivers. And what's amazing is most of us have lived long enough to experience that, and we do it anyway. It promises much, but it gives little. It dupes us. It does not satisfy. John Calvin was right when he said that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. Humanity, we just keep producing them around the clock. Inventory may be low in Publix on some things, but inventory is high when it comes to idolatry in the human hearts. And in verse 15, Paul gives the remedy for this. He says that you should turn from these worthless things and turn to the living God who made heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. That's the gospel. Turn from idols. We must lovingly and kindly, but oh so very directly, tell people to turn from idols. We, we know the idols of the land. We, we know where we are tempted to serve money. Like, if you are controlled by money, then you have to do whatever it takes to get it and to keep it. Fame. The travesty of social media 
is that it's thinking that we can build our own little universe with me right at the center. And then I can compare myself to you in your little universe. How many likes do I have? How many friends do I have? We get this really hungry power thing for fame and friends, and we love it. Money will fail. God will not. Careers will fail. God will not. Power will fade. God will not. Fame will come and go. God will not. We must identify the problem when we share the gospel. And any gospel that says, stay as you are and keep doing what you're doing is not the gospel that Paul was preaching in Lystra. And oh, that is becoming very much the norm gospel spreading throughout the country. Third, when the Holy Spirit is at work leading us to share the gospel with people who believe a lot of different things, it's going to involve humility, transparency, transparency with a twist of exciting confidence. And here's what I mean. I think it's found in the first part of verse 15. Men, why are you doing these things? We are men also with the same nature as you, and we are proclaiming good news to you. I think it's very safe to say that our culture looks down on humility. It assumes humility is some kind of weakness or deformity. Because if you watch any commercial, any sitcom, any movie, go to any sporting event, check out social media, and if we're going to be really honest, check out the way our homes look, the way our schools look, the way how we drive, when we're in the storms, we check all of that out, we're going to find that it is all about pride, pride, pride. In one of two ways, either I will build myself up and look really, really good, or I will tear you down. Pride. But look at Paul's words carefully. We are men also with the same nature as you. That's the kind of attitude to have when you present the gospel, an attitude of humility and transparency. You can't share the gospel with an attitude of, I'm better than you. Because you're not. I'm not. People shouldn't be surprised when I mess up. And really, I, I know the unsaved, they accuse Christians, the church, I can never go to that church, or the biggest hypocrites over there on the, place, on the face of the planet. There's really only one way to respond to that. Yep. You're exactly right. And then... Go on to really blow them away and let them know that they would be shocked to know what kinds of thoughts go through my mind. And they would gasp if they knew the temptations that were on my heart. Now don't fire me, but I think that is true. We can't come with the gospel as a holier-than-thou. And then, after we reveal our, ourselves, we're pretty transparent with people, and then we say, man, I am just like you. But here's the twist. I have incredibly good news to share 
And then we share the good news with a strong dose of excitement and confidence about the one true God, about the real God, about the God who made everything in the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. So we share it humbly and transparently, but we do it with a twist of exciting confidence in the living God. Fourth, when the Holy Spirit leads us to share the gospel with people who believe a lot of different things, it involves suffering. And the temptation is to just brush over this real fast because no one likes to talk about this. But verse 19, Then some of the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and when they had won over the crowd and stoned Paul, they dragged him out of the city thinking he was dead. Why does it have to be like this? Why does it have to be hard? Why suffering? And the simple but hard reality answer is this. It is part of a Christian's calling. First Peter, 2 Peter 1.21 says, For you were called to this. Called to what? Suffering. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. That's hard. But God never allows suffering without a purpose. And in my preparing for this week, I came across two quotes that I made a slide for us, and I want us to see them. One from Tim Keller, C.S. Lewis. And I, and I thought they just kind of hit the nail on the head. One of the main ways we move from abstract knowledge about God to a personal encounter with him as a living reality is through the furnace of affliction. Affliction moves people into relationships with Jesus. It's kind of a weird way to think it, but that's what happens often. You probably have somewhere in your life, somewhere where you, where you would account, things were really, really hard, and it drew me to Jesus. And then for those who are Christians, are believers, we, we, we can understand that affliction, it lets Jesus become that rock. Like, don't you find yourself running to the rock? Sometimes we may try to run to something else first, but we recognize, no, Jesus, you are what I need during affliction. So affliction has this weird kind of purpose to it. And then I think the words of C.S. Lewis are good for us to hear. God, who foresaw your tribulation, like this did not catch God off guard. He knows all things, has specially armed you to go through it, not without pain, but without stain. And when it comes to sharing the gospel, sometimes suffering is part of the equation. But we have to remember, we have to trust the promises that God does not allow anything to happen to us without a purpose, His purpose. And fifth, when the Holy Spirit leads us to share the gospel with people who believe a lot of different things, it includes perseverance. Verse 20. After the disciples surrounded him, he got up and he went into town. And the next day he left with Barnabas for Derby. And guess what they did there? The same thing over again. 
Where's the synagogue? Point me to the synagogue. Share the gospel. Let me get to the marketplaces. Share the gospel. Perseverance. Stick to itness. It is mandatory when it comes to sharing the gospel. If there was a, a list of words that described a Christian's life, described a Christian's journey on this side of heaven, perseverance would be near the top of the list. It is a grind. And it is why our reliance on the Holy Spirit is so, so vital. So we share the gospel with compassion, kindness, and love. Do it directly confronting the problem. Humble transparency with a twist of exciting confidence. There could be suffering. And do it with perseverance. Perseverance, relying on the Holy Spirit because there are people who need to turn from idols and turn to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I've been saying all week long to you what a wild and extremely difficult experience Paul encountered. Let us learn well from it. And I want to ask that you would just be gracious to us as you shape us into, into messengers of the gospel. That you would do the work, <clears throat> do the work that you intend in me and in everyone else here. Do the work in us. Give us courage, compassion, and perseverance to share the gospel around us and in a way that keeps turning the hearts of people to yourself and to your son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.